Thanks to Slack for supporting The Motley Fool. Slack is a messaging app which brings together all your team's communications in one place, making work simpler and more productive. Go to slack.com to learn more. Welcome to Industry Focus, the show that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. And today we're talking energy and industrials. It's Thursday, the 18th of January. And today we're going to be discussing Taylor's recent trip to CES in Las Vegas, GE and BP. I'm your host, Sarah Parisi, and joining me in the studio is Motley Fool Canada premium analyst and all-round nice guy, Taylor Muckerman. Taylor, thank you for joining me. How are you doing? Cheerio. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I, great. How about you? I'm good. Have you caught some sun from... Vegas? No, it was actually, uh, I think, the rainiest two no. days in like Vegas history. So, uh, <laughs> well, I'm sure they. <laughs> the last day, sure, but the first two days were quite miserable. I'm trying not to show too much joy <laughs> in my voice because yeah. um, of all the snow right now. Um, so, what was it like? Did you see anything cool? Yeah, there were a lot of people, so didn't get to see a whole, a whole heck of a lot. Um, but that, I think that's just par for the course out there every year. Um, but got to ride in an autonomous car with Lyft. That's very cool. Uh, they partnered with BMW for the show, uh, so it's not a, a permanent partnership. It was just something that they were doing for the four days of the CES conference. Um, and then s- autonomous cars were a big hit, mm-hmm. both in terms of car manufacturers and uh, the technology providers behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And was that the first uh, trip you've taken in an autonomous vehicle? I got driven to the airport in a Tesla was the Model X with the this SUV, mm-hmm. and um, the guy took his hands off the steering wheel on the highway going 80 miles an hour. Ooh. But uh, so that was pretty cool. But you know, this was um, point to point the entire ride. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the driver touched the touched their hands on the wheel once, and that was just to get us out of the parking lot initially. Mm-hmm. Um, thankfully, there was a ton of traffic, so it was just stop and go. But but the car handled itself quite nicely. Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of a testament to the quality of the tech if it can deal with uh, the traffic as it was because uh, Vegas is known to have really bad layouts. They don't they have they don't have um, lines on the road and they have like a different system. I, it's all mayhem. Yeah. yeah. So so I think it's probably it's probably very well done on BMW mm-hmm. and, and Aptiv is the company formerly Delphi yep. um, that kind of came up with all the, the tech around it. They um on a couple of the articles that I saw about this, they talked about the positioning of all the LiDAR and radar sensors. Did you notice those much when you were around the car? Yeah, no, you really don't because they, they built them into the existing body kits of the car. There was a couple uh, right on the right and left front fenders that kind of looked like uh, some vents that you would see on some mm-hmm. sports cars, but they were actually uh, cameras there. And then they had the LiDAR rather than the, the typical roof LiDAR that you see that's mm-hmm. spinning around in the in the cylindrical form, it was actually just an, an addition below the two side view mirrors that I didn't even notice until the uh, representative pointed it out. So very sleek, looked just like the BMW 5 Series you would buy off the showroom floor, mm-hmm. uh, only it can drive itself. Yeah, uh, so yeah, impressive. and even the monitors on the inside that were displaying um, all of the information being relayed back to the car from the LiDAR and radar and cameras. Uh, that was a stock display from BMW, so it was perfectly integrated into the car itself, and uh, the interior didn't need to be modified at all. They they gave us like a little iPad that they mounted in the back, so you could follow the trip, and it would signify if it was on autonomous mode or um, or manual mode. But that was the only modification there. 
Um, those iPads that you mentioned, I heard that they were kind of they're trying to test what inf- what level of information people are comfortable with when yeah. they're a passenger in these cars. So, do we want to know everything, or mm-hmm. would we rather just you know it take us from point A to point B and we just get out? Um, so, what what did you think of that interface? Was that more information than you would want? I know you were kind of looking at it from an investment perspective or more like of an analyst perspective. Yeah. But if you were just a passenger, what kind of level of information? I think all three of us, myself, Rex Moore, and David Kretzman, all kind of just forgot about the monitor the mm-hmm. second we got into the car. Um, felt completely comfortable. We were talking. There was an engineer in the shotgun seat and a, and a quote-unquote driver in the in the driver's seat just in case anything needed to be taken over manually. Uh, so we were just busy talking to them the whole time. Mm-hmm. Uh, not really concerned about much other than other drivers on the road. Mm-hmm. So I think in this instance there were 20 predetermined point-to-point locations mm-hmm. that you could do this with, uh, but it actually used Lyft's app um, presumably it told you that you were getting an autonomous vehicle. Yeah, so the, it was funny. Um, no one noticed it at first, but then when we revisited the app when it was on its way to us, the little car icon actually had a LiDAR oh, cool. uh, <laughs> graphic on top of its mm-hmm. roof, so you could clearly see that it was an autonomous car. Yeah. And I bet people loved that there, all the tech. Yeah, Mark Cuban climbed out of one when oh, we were wow. in the parking lot, awesome. so he, he came down for a ride, mm-hmm. and uh, Baron Davis, former basketball player, was there as well. Wow, you're rubbing shoulders with uh, yeah, This is <laughs> yeah. pretty much of a downtrack for you. <laughs> um, so to kind of get back to the uh, to the investing perspective, mm-hmm. this is obviously where Uber and Lyft are heading. And Uber and Lyft, obviously private companies, um, but Uber has suggested that it may go public in 2019. What do you think about these... What do you think about this concept as for where it's heading? Do you think that as you've experienced it, this is going to be a really practical way for these companies to go forward? Yeah, I think it's a no-brainer. Um, talking to the engineers in the front seat and just my own personal thoughts, and, and Rex chimed in as well, that um, maybe not entirely uh, United States-wide or North America-wide, but within the next 10 years, I think in the next 20 years, you know, you could see the majority of cars being sold um, autonomously driven. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll take a while to replace every car on the road with an autonomous vehicle, but... I, I think that you know you could see the majority of cars being sold in the next ten in the next twenty years be autonomous. And the engineer said for sure in the next ten years you're going to be see these rolling off the showroom floor for um, you know in everyday drivers. Mm-hmm. And uh, you've got not only the automa- automotive manufacturers doing it, but then you've got companies that you would never think getting involved, like BlackBerry on the security side, because these cars are technically hackable because they're connected via Wi-Fi or or satellite to um, to the uh, headquarters of these individual car manufacturers for updates and things like that, and just collecting second by second data from from their location based GPS. So hackable. So BlackBerry is focusing very heavily on this. They were well re- well represented there on the autonomous driving front, and then Nvidia, no f- go figure, um, chasing down that ten trillion dollar uh, automotive market with uh, all of their uh, GPUs that are revolutionizing so many industries. Um, AI, uh, gaming, and now autonomous driving. So mm-hmm. Nvidia, BlackBerry, and uh, you mentioned Ativa, which is uh, uh, spun out of Delphi, and um, multiple other companies out there. But investors, if you wanted a small stake in Uber, you could invest in SoftBank because they just upped their investment. And then I think GM has a stake in Lyft. So there are some ways, but yeah, they're not completely public just yet. Thankfully, uh, because you would have lost quite a bit of money on Uber (laughs) had they gone public uh, not too long ago. Um, yeah, you mentioned GM. They're, GM has committed to you know releasing 20 all-electric vehicles by 2023. Mm-hmm. So they're going to put robot taxis on the road by 2019. 
um, that's just a huge acceleration, especially when you've got companies like Waymo subsidiary, um, so, sorry, Waymo, the subsidiary of uh, Alphabet. Mm-hmm. Um, they've surpassed 4 million miles on road tests. So so it's kind of, you have this almost massive imbalance in the industry of companies that are, are capable of actually making these cars and putting them on the road and the companies that have actually tested the tech and have probably most likely to get approved uh, regulatory-wise. Yeah, that's the regulatory thing I think will be the biggest hang-up. Um, and Volvo has been working with um, Uber and Pittsburgh. They've got self-driving Ubers going on there. Obviously, they show up with an engineer in, in the seat collecting data and monitoring its its um, driving performance. But uh, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of companies out there. And Magna International, a company we cover in uh, Stock Advisor Canada, uh, one of the largest um, automotive companies in the world. They, they work with certain car parts to build for companies, or a car company can outsource the entire build out of a car. So they work very very well with BMW and a few other manufacturers. And they have their Max 4 autonomous system, which similar to Ativa, um, just integrates directly into the, the pre-existing body of a car. And um, that goes all the way up to level four autonomous driving, which is enough to get you on the road without mm-hmm. ever having to touch the steering wheel. That's incredible. We're, we're really passing into Dylan's uh, tech territory. <laughs> Back um, off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I was just thinking Intel and their Mobileye acquisition. Yeah, too. that's right. Yeah. Um, you know, I think they've got a deal. I think Intel, obviously, with Mobileye and then Lyft. And I think BMW have all created kind of a... Con- and Magna is a part of the Intel and BMW yes, as well. Yes, you're right. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just one small piece of news to add to this. Lyft is opening a self-driving vehicle development facility in Palo Alto called Level 5. Which <laughs> that's the nice. ultimate. Yeah, that's yep. the top of the top of the heap in terms of, uh, I guess, I don't know if it's a certification or just uh, you unlock Level 5, mm-hmm. but um, that's that's the best of the best. Yeah, I think I think those bands were created by regulators to kind of say, like, and, and it's, it's amazing to me, um, especially coming from a place that doesn't have the kind of state uh, legislator, legislator, um, that we have here that different states have reacted so differently to self-driving cars. And you've got like self-driving tests going on in Boston and obviously California's big, but then other states that has been really difficult to push yes. this through. Um, so yeah, c- cool story. Um, amazing first-hand experience. I'm very jealous. Yeah, it was wild. And they touched on Boston saying that the streets are some of the most complex mm-hmm. in the country. And that's like um, just accelerating the learning curve for them because um, they can take that and handle a country road with no problem because there's just so many distractions and so many different forms of turns that you have to uh, that you have to deal with in a, in a city like Boston and Pittsburgh. And the, I've read that the bridges in Pittsburgh were one of the biggest constraints because you're on a road with no peripheral yeah. boundaries, mm-hmm. and so the the computers kind of lost their minds a little bit trying to bounce the lidar and radar off of nothing. Mm-hmm. So um, that was one of the bigger challenges. But they're in a city that's that's full of bridges, and they they figured it out. Mm. And I think if they can start figuring out in places like Boston, then London, and places like that yeah. will have. Because I mean, if you look at a lot of like grid cities, like Indianapolis, for example must be fairly easy to kind of map and get used yes. to for all that but yeah and these older cities like boston must be much much more difficult mm-hmm. um so we're going to talk about a couple of news items that have grabbed our attention recently but before i do i want to thank slack for supporting industry focus slack is a messaging app which brings all your team's communications together giving everyone a shared workspace where conversations are organized and accessible it's so easy to search and makes finding important messages reports and notifications much easier than email 
Slack vastly reduces the amount of emails I send while increasing the quality of communications I have with my colleagues. Staying in regular contact is a must here at fool.com and Slack's seamless mobile app allows me to pick up where I left off when I'm on the move. We have the added complexity of having a lot of off-site contractors and people who work from home and Slack allows us to easily stay connected and never miss a beat. The other invaluable thing I use all the time is the drag and drop file sharing that works with apps like Google Drive and Salesforce. Salesforce and our Slack system is really tailored to our company with apps that we use regularly. There are now over a thousand apps to choose from, so I'm confident you'll be able to get the apps that you use regularly with your company too. Thank you very much to Slack for supporting the show. Slack, where work happens. Find out why at slack.com. That's slack.com. So something that kind of grabbed my attention um, Tuesday this week is that BP is taking a 1.7 billion hit to its first fourth quarter earnings, sorry, uh, because of a settlement claim related to the 2010 Deepwater Horizon disaster. I'm sure everyone will remember the April 2010 blowout that caused an explosion on the rig in the Gulf of Mexico, sadly killing 11 crewmen and causing the largest oil spill in American history. The cost of the disaster is estimated to be $63 billion. The company reached a settlement with the U.S. government in 2015 for environmental damages for $20 billion, and the company is said to be in a separate U.S. settlement program for Gulf residents and businesses um, that's nearing close, and this is the source of the recent charge. So the company was expected to report net income of $2.1 billion in the fourth quarter, according to analysts, but this charge and a previously announced $1.5 billion accounting charge for the U.S. tax overhaul makes that seem unlikely. So... Taylor, I think people are going to be surprised um, that BP is still feeling the effects of something that happened almost nine years ago. Uh, do you think that? Can you put this into perspective for us? Is this a big deal? Do you think BP will will fare fine? Um, you know, you think about what did they say? Uh, Three billion this year. That's compared to five and a half last year, and seven billion the year before. So these charges have been adding up, but the good news is they're trickling lower. Mm-hmm. So um, who knows? Maybe next year's only a billion. Uh, make it make that in jest. <laughs> but uh, overall, they're estimating sixty-five billion for this for the Deepwater Horizon um, disaster, and as you mentioned, almost a decade uh, since it did happen, or the better part of a decade, and. It's it's an, one of those long tail risks mm-hmm. that you entail if you are uh, investing in the upstream or even the midstream. I guess could be the downstream too mm-hmm. if you if a refi- something happens at a refinery. But um, yeah, definitely a big risk. Hopefully this is the end of it. But I did read that uh, judges have been pushing off some of the more quote unquote difficult cases for these BP lawyers till the end. So who knows um, what what else is still left to be handled in the courtroom. Um, three Another $3 billion to be handed out in, in terms of fines and, uh, and judgment. Mm-hmm. I think there's 400,000 individual Gulf residents and businesses that are levying claims against them. So presumably in that, I mean, it was, it was an awful thing to happen to the mm-hmm. people uh, in the region. And presumably if they're pushing off some of the more you know, heavy hitting claims, then that might be interesting. Yes, exactly. Um, But yeah, one question I did have for you that some listeners might have too is obviously BP is receiving a lot of the complaints, uh, a lot of the claims against Mm -hmm. us. Um, But, you know, people involved in making the rig, Hyundai, Transocean, how come it fell to BP, a lot of these claims? Uh, I think, A, they were the the operator, they Mm -hmm. owned the lease, and I think that they made a lot of the judgment calls that Mm -hmm. were recorded. So I just think that uh, the liability eventually fell to them. Transocean was fined. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't have the numbers on how how much, but uh, they certainly got got hit with more than just a slap on the wrist. And I think they probably lost a lot of faith with some of their customers. 
and, but they've learned from it. Still, still a going concern and doing doing well compared to the offshore oil space. So, I think just BP took the ownership because mm -hmm. it, they had the ultimate upside based on the production of that well. So they face the ultimate downside mm -hmm. uh, as well. And just to put it into perspective, $65 billion is two and a half times this year. They're twelve 12 months gross profit. So it's, you know, it's almost nice a race is two and a half years worth yeah. of gross profit at, at this year's level. So pretty significant. Mm -hmm. And the stock kind of tracks Exxon performance. Mm -hmm. uh, so in terms of stock performance over the past five years, which is the period I was looking at it, yeah. it's not had a huge impact. Mm -hmm. um, however, obviously, this this charge is going to be carried on and going to uh, affect their, their break-even point on their per barrel. Um, is this making them less competitive with everybody else in the industry? Or does everybody else in the industry kind of have their own hang-ups, which is what it feels like at the minute? Yeah, so I don't think that um, this is as big of a hang-up right now, but it's, it has lingering effects because $65 billion could have been spent elsewhere. Absolutely. They sold off a lot of business units in order to pay for this. And uh, rather than selling those off and reinvesting or just reinvesting without having to shed a lot of their assets, uh, definitely cost them a lot of future cash flow. And that, I think, is where they're going to be playing the most catch up if they still want to be compared to the, the majors of the world. Whereas you look at Exxon and Chevron, they Exxon has had execution risk on the acquisition side with, I think, XTO Energy a while back on the natural gas side. And then you have Royal Dutch Shell with BG Group. Um, that could potentially bite them if natural gas doesn't recover in the LNG space. But in terms of future performance, the, the outlook for that company definitely took a hit. And uh, But as you mentioned, the stock performance doesn't seem to have, but you're looking at uh, fewer lower dividend, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, they've still been buying back shares at at a small clip, but that that future performance is what took a hit. So mm -hmm. not necessarily the immediate um, numbers. Interesting. I think it's I think their break even is like fifty dollars a barrel, so that's still pretty good. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think they only have like three billion barrels or something like that of estimated reserves left. Versus I don't know the Exxon and Chevrons, but I do know it's much, much mm -hmm. higher than that. And they had to sell out of a lot of their renewable assets. So, I've been reading about the um, potential uh, Saudi Aramco IPO next mm -hmm. year, um, or potentially this year, sorry. And uh, yeah, their reserve figure is just so mind-blowing that it yeah. just makes everything yeah. else seem tiny. It's like, why even bother producing yeah, exactly. oil at this point? <laughs> um, okay, so the one more thing we want to talk about is the uh, supposed separation of GE. Mm -hmm. So there's more bad news for GE investors, which I think we both are. Uh, yes, yep. I am. Yeah. So we're both feeling the pain. Uh, the stock was down about three percent on Tuesday on the news that the company is considering a breakup. This fairly dramatic move has supposedly uh, been instigated by the 6.2 billion charge the company has to take in the fourth quarter due to a reassessment of the company's reinsurance liabilities in the GE Capital business. So, uh, not to get too technical, but reinsurance is essentially where you pay the claims on policies sold by other insurers, <laughs> uh, and the policy insurance. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it's a minefield. Um, <laughs> and the policies causing GE a headache are underpriced long-term care agreements. And so, the com though the company hasn't sold reinsurance coverage since 2006, they're now having to pay out on the policies um, as these claimants age. And as we know, obviously, it's aging population. Um, and, and they're uh, living longer. Exactly. Yeah. Living longer um, is creating a, a much bigger headache than mm -hmm. they expected. So the company got in outside uh, actuarials and accountants, and they said they, they need to set aside about 15 billion to cover the next seven years. Yep. Um, 
for anyone listening who isn't familiar with GE, uh, it's a 125-year-old company. They sell everything from airplane engines to hospital equipment. Was at one point the most valuable company in the United States, um, but it's been struggling. Uh, it lost more than 100 billion in market value last year, and on declining profit margins, inventory buildup, they've had falling sales in their power business. So yeah, basically, it's it's adding to this mess. Uh, mm-hmm. Flannery, Flannery announced this. Um, he 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 had predicted or he had said in the in the November call that we would be looking at a charge coming down the pipeline, but I think that people underestimated the extent of this. Uh, some analysts are saying that this actually wasn't a surprise for GE and they may have already done valuation discussions and those kind of things. Uh, were you surprised by the news? Uh, a little bit, yeah, because as you mentioned, they sold off these businesses right after the financial crisis, uh, Jeff Immelt did, and, but they, in that agreement, they agreed to keep these liabilities on their books for these reinsurance versus selling that off. Um, I think that was, I don't think it was included with the Genworth spinoff, but around that same time when they sold off their insurance business that Jack Welsh bought in the 80s. So um, two different CEOs, one bought the business, one sold the business, and now the third CEO in this lineup has to deal with the ultimate mm-hmm. mess uh, of paying this $15 billion. And as you mentioned, around $6 billion right now, and then $2 billion per year to 2024. So it's going to be parsed out over time. Definitely interesting now that he says the power, aviation, and healthcare businesses could be on the chopping block in parts or or in whole as spinoffs. Um, be it's looking at pretty. it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we'll get a, uh, a clearer picture in the spring, mm-hmm. but definitely going to be a much different company moving forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, much smaller company. Much I mean, smaller. We're seeing a lot of this. There's a lot of investor pressure to create more streamlined operations. I'm thinking off the top of my head. Uh, Hewlett-Packard, Dow DuPont, Alcoa mm-hmm. um, have all been kind of broken up recently as I think people strive to be kind of more efficient, uh, nimble organizations. Yeah. Um, so do you think this is kind of the last the last huge conglomerate? Do you think if this goes, this is going to be the end of kind of the conglomerate concept? It could be. There's still a few out there, but mm-hmm. I don't know if you'll see the formation of, of many more. Yeah. Because uh, Dow DuPont tried and then they're pretty much reversing course less than a couple years later. And, and uh, I think Agrium just bought Potash Corporate of Saskatchewan. And they didn't just buy them, but they just finalized it and changed their name to Nutrient. So, but it's a little bit more aligned uh, in terms of their their end users than so many disparate mm-hmm. businesses as GE has. So, first off the bat, we're going to see the transportation and their current business be sold off, and that current business is lighting and energy management. So. The, the the foundation business of GE <laughs> being sold off in yeah. terms of light bulbs and Thomas Edison and uh, this this uh, liability isn't the only thing that's going to tag them. They're also going to be more negatively affected from the tax uh, reform than than most every other country or a company. Excuse me. A in terms of their tax loss is going to be less because the tax base will be uh, a lower percentage, and B because um, higher tax charges on foreign profits. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it's double not whammy. Side. Yeah, <laughs> it's really not. Um, I mean, from from an investor perspective, it's undoubtedly going to make people nervous. Mm-hmm. However, I will say that um, I, I do think that there's potential in breaking up these these companies and creating profit centers. Whereas before, you've had company, you've had aspects of the business like healthcare, which has been um, incredibly successful, masking some of the. I mean, they didn't even know that they were losing money yeah. uh, to the extent that they were losing money on this insurance issue. So um, in an organization that big, then you, you can 
kind of mask some of the success. And, and I think that what we'll see is that being broken out. Yeah, hopefully they get a little bit more focused out of this whole thing. And one other thing we forgot to mention, I think, is that GE Capital's got to yeah. shelf the dividend that they've been paying up to GE. So yep. uh, more money going out yep. and less money coming in. <laughs> we don't have much good to say <laughs> right have. now. <laughs> but, you know, then, then that's when you really got to start doing some digging and consider a contrarian mm-hmm. Outlook versus the market. What is it? Be be greedy when others are fearful. No, that's and, what they say. Yeah, fearful when harder, others are greedy. Harder said than or harder done than said. It's very true. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much uh, for joining me today and talking about CES and helping me get yeah. through my, <laughs> the the G issue. Um, but that's it. We'll from, cope together. We, well, yeah, we're in group <laughs> therapy. Um, well, that's it from us today. If you'd like to get in touch, please feel free to email us at industryfocusupful.com or tweet us on Twitter at mfindustryfocus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. For Taylor, I'm Sarah Priestley. Thanks for listening and full on. Thank you.